Acts chapter number eight today, as we jump in. Acts chapter number eight. I read a really interesting story last week as I was preparing for this message about a man named Justin Collins. And um, Justin Collins, he was just doing something very routine. He was um, heating up some cooking oil on the stovetop. He was kind of greasing a pan. He got it lit up. He was getting it going. While he was doing that, he did something um, inadvisable, but we've probably all done something like it before. He stepped away from the pan. He went outside, um, in this specific instance, went outside to get his grill heated up. He's trying to get everything going at one time. As he's outside, here's the smoke detector from the kitchen begins to go off. And so he comes inside trying to figure out what's going on. And this cooking oil, this grease had started to, it had caught fire. It had caught fire. Um, and anyone in here ever had, you've had to deal with a grease fire in your kitchen before? A couple of you guys, not a fun experience. So I'm told I have not uh, spent enough time in the kitchen to have to deal with this yet. Um, what he does now is he, um, grabs the pan and he runs it outside instead of smothering it inside. He goes outside with it and he's planning on smothering this as you're supposed to. But as he goes outside, he's not thinking And this was apparently early enough in the morning. There's still dew on the grass. He sets the pan down in the grass. And water droplets from the grass fall into this grease fire. Anyone want to guess what happens next? If you're familiar with the grease fire, you add water to it, and all of a sudden that water, it evaporates almost instantaneously, and that grease that is on fire goes everywhere. Here, Justin um, suffered from some significant burns because we see as this water droplets fall into the grease, it causes that fire to go everywhere. It's a dangerous story, but I tell it for this reason. This is how persecution throughout all of history affects the church. This is how persecution affects the church. You see, throughout the history of the church from the first century into the second, all the way through modern days, what you find is that there have been those who have attempted to pour water onto the flames of the work of God. Every time they do so, it's like pouring water into a grease fire. It doesn't put the flame out. It just causes it to go in every other direction. And so last week, we explored Acts chapter number 7. In Acts 7, a man by the name of Stephen is preaching and teaching the Word of God as he's being confronted by wicked religious leaders. And eventually, what do they do? They take Stephen outside of the city, and they stone him. They kill him because of the teaching and preaching that he is carrying out there in Jerusalem. As we come to Acts chapter number 8, we find something similar Uh, not only similar taking place, but really stepping up a notch happening within the body of the church. You see, in chapter 8, verse number 1, we read that Saul approved of his execution. This is Stephen. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And in this time, there are believed to be about 10,000 believers in the city of Jerusalem. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But give or take, about 10,000 believers in Jerusalem based on the accounts we have so far in the book of Acts. This persecution rises up and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Devout men now buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so what we're finding is we're finding the Jerusalem church, this church that was set on fire by God. The Sanhedrin, this is the religious leaders of the day, they try to splash water on this flame, but instead of putting it out, they cause these sparks to fly. This is like a hammer to hot steel. They are shooting every direction. And verse number four tells us that those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. Preaching the word. How incredible is that? And so as the church scatters, the apostles stay put. It's likely there were some others who stayed there in Jerusalem, but not many. But what we find is we find that this group here is in, there's a smaller group now left in Jerusalem. Saul is persecuting the believers who were scattered, but not scared. And they went everywhere preaching the word. Today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be jumping into, actually, it's going to be a little mini study of chapter number eight. This week, we'll start it. Next week, we'll finish it. And we're going to see the man, Philip, as he is coming onto the scene. This is also another one of the seven who were mentioned in Acts chapter six. And so we see Stephen as he preaches and then is killed in Acts chapter seven. And now Philip in Acts chapter number eight, we're going to see two stories of Philip's life. One we're going to see today, and then one we're going to see tomorrow. I'm sorry, next week, not tomorrow. Don't come tomorrow. You will not hear it tomorrow. Next Sunday. But what is Philip doing? Let's watch what's taking place, even as this body is scattered throughout the region. Philip, one of these men who is scattered now, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was much joy in that city. And so this incredible thing is taking place. This incredible thing is happening here in Acts chapter number 8. As he takes the gospel to Samaria, this is a neighboring region. As he goes into this region, he finds people who are hungry for the gospel. This in and of itself is an incredible thing. Um, if you're not familiar with Samaria, Samaria itself is a really interesting place in this time in history. See, Samaria is immediately um, beside, just north of Judea. But Samaria is not, um, it's not primarily Jewish. You see, what had happened many, many generations before, hundreds of years before, is that the Jewish people had been exiled to Babylon. In Babylon, as they are carried away here, some of them began to um, marry others from these different regions. And so for generations, there were some that began to intermarry. Among the Jewish culture and customs of the day, this was forbidden. And so when they left Babylon, moved back to what is now modern-day Israel, we find that many of these Samaritans now, they settle not in Judea, but in this region known as Samaria, the place of the Samaritans. These Samaritans were descendants of those mixed marriages. And so they are not Jewish, nor are they entirely Gentile. And in fact, many of the uh, traditional Jews looked on them with contempt. They wanted nothing to do with these Samaritans. They would rather do business with a Gentile 
than one of these individuals. And so we find that this Samaria is really an unlikely place for the gospel to go because those Orthodox Jews wanted nothing to do with this area. They didn't want to go there. We find Jesus in John chapter four. He says, I need to go through Samaria. But even then it was looked at and he was looked at, what are you doing here? You're a Jewish man. But yet this is where we find, this is the first gospel hotbed, if you will, that we see spring up outside of Jerusalem. How incredible is that? Of all the unlikely places of unlikely places for the gospel to do its work, Samaria is at the top of the list. But yet here, Philip goes and he takes the gospel with him. And so as he takes the gospel here, what takes place? Look with me in verse number six. When they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. Unclean spirits, they're crying out with a loud voice. They came out of many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. You see, as he goes, there are these signs that are being evidenced to this unbelieving crowd. Unclean spirits are coming out of people. And then they're healed. And what happens as they're healed? Joy comes. Joy comes. You see, the movement of the gospel brings about with it, we find in this chapter, two things. Brings about healing and brings about joy. These two accompany the moving of the gospel. Healing and joy. And so we find as they receive this word of God of who Jesus is, they believe on this. We find healing and we find joy beginning to erupt within this area. And so Philip and these other believers are preaching and they're teaching And there's joy in this city. And can I just, quick aside, this isn't the main point of the message, but quick aside here. Um, If you're missing joy in your life, can I tell you the same solution that we find here in Acts chapter number 8 is the solution to joy within all of us. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things that David writes in the Psalms, he says this, Lord, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And in fact, the fruit of the Spirit that we're told in the book of Galatians, love, joy, peace. We find it right there. Does joy mean the absence of trials and difficulties? Do you think that Philip was happy to be driven out of Jerusalem? We don't find any evidence of that. And yet, what do we find? We find the gospel at work And we find joy within those that it's working in. If your life is not marked by joy, if you can describe yourself or if others around you wouldn't describe you as a joyful person, I would encourage you, look into the gospel. Go back to the gospel. Remember that you and I are sinners apart from Jesus Christ, without Jesus Christ, destined for condemnation without him. And then remember that God so loved the world that he gave his son. That whosoever, whoever, doesn't matter, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. Remember these things. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember whose you are. You belong to him. You are his child. That's a reason for joy. It's a reason for joy. And these first century believers now, they're experiencing the joy that comes with their salvation. How incredible is this? But watch what takes place as there's much joy there. Look at the next word, verse number nine. But 
When the end of one sentence is, there is joy, and the next sentence is, but, we're kind of, we're buckling up, right? Something's coming. And watch with me. This is an interesting um, situation. We're going to find an unlikely convert. And we're going to see in just a moment that unlikely is actually not a strong enough word here as we see this word, but, come in. And I just want to remind you, because we've looked at this already in the book of Acts. Acts chapter number five is um, comparable here. There's a man by the name of Ananias, his wife named Sapphira. And they conspired together to lie to the church. And Peter says, you've lied to God as you've done so. And we see severe consequences happen with Ananias and Sapphira, costing them their lives. And so now what we're about to see, uh, understand this with me. One Bible commentator, a pastor by the name of Warren Wearsby, he says this, wherever God sows his true believers, Satan will eventually sow his counterfeits. Wherever God sows true believers, Satan will eventually sow his counterfeits. When we looked at Acts chapter number six, remember, what do we see? We see that the enemy prefers to destroy a church from within, not from without. He prefers to do it from within the body of believers. It's a lot more effective that way. So remember this. Satan prefers to hinder the work from the inside, not the outside. What happens when it comes from the outside and the inside is unified for the sake of Christ? Good luck tearing that apart. You might be able to damage it. You might be able to put dents in the armor. But at the end of the day, that body is healthy. But just like you and I, an infection gets inside of our bloodstream that is just as dangerous, if not more so, than things that take place outside of the body. And so what we find here is that we cannot be surprised that not all rejoice when the gospel is spread. Specifically, we, here we find a man by the name of Simon. Verse 9 tells us this man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Excuse me. Happy November. What we see now is we see this man, Simon, this man, Simon, he had um, practiced magic. So there were certain false pseudo signs and wonders that Simon had done. We don't know all of the details here, but we know that Simon specifically was practicing some sort of magic. Um, there was something that he was doing, and it's, uh, we have reason to believe this is not just some sort of illusionary thing. This isn't, you know, Penn and Teller getting up on the platform. And no, this is something significantly um, opposed to what God is actually trying to accomplish in the area. And in the middle of all of this, this man, Simon, not only is he doing these wonders, he's not just trying to make a buck or whatever. No, what we're actually seeing is that he's proclaiming to the people that he is someone great. He's saying, oh, look at the signs that God is doing through me. And in fact, the verse here tells us that he preaches himself. He preaches himself. What a scathing condemnation coming from the scriptures. And watch in verse number 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so here Simon is practicing these things. And understand with me, before we like behave harshly towards the Samaritans here that are believing Simon, 
Um, let me kind of issue you this challenge. Convince a three-year-old that monopoly money is real currency. How hard is that to do? Probably not that difficult. Okay, please don't do it to my kids because then I'm going to be on the hook when they realize that it's not real. But man, if you want to pull a kid out of the nursery or kid out of our preschool area and say, hey, this is real money, it wouldn't be that hard to convince them. And yet if I came in here today and said, hey guys, listen, I got a million dollars and I, psh, Uncle Pennybags here, right, from the Monopoly game, how many of you are falling for that? None of you. Why? Because you've seen the real thing. You know what to compare it to. You know to look and say, that doesn't look anything like money that I'm aware of within the United States of America. Because you've seen the real thing, the authentic. Simon now is deceiving these men and women because they had never seen the real thing. But then now, Philip enters the scene, and they see what God is actually accomplishing. And so they walk away from him and say, oh, well, that's okay. This is, here it is. They've been freed from this deception. And so what we find is that these men and women, they believe in Jesus Christ. They were baptized, men and women. They're converted into the faith. And watch this, verse number 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And so what's drawing Simon's attention here? Well, what's the thing that Simon is just infatuated with? What's well, the signs and the wonders and the stuff that he's seeing? And we see this word used, believed, and we're going to kind of get into that word here in just a little bit. But what we find is that this man, Simon, among this group of people, began to profess faith in Jesus and even take this step of being baptized. Verse number 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had heard the word of God, received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John. So these are two of the apostles. They had followed Jesus themselves in the flesh, and now they're going to the Samaritan church. Who came down, verse number 15, Peter and John, and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so, so what's going on here? Peter and John, the other apostles, they hear the good news of what's happening in, in Samaria. And so they come to Samaria. They say, oh, we need to go there and see how much is ha how, what is happening, what is taking place. Uh, and then not only that, when they get to Samaria, they say, oh, you guys haven't yet received the Holy Spirit. And there's some debate about this because later in the New Testament, we see the, the belief in Jesus Christ being tied in directly with the reception of the Holy Spirit. But in these early days, I believe that this is taking place as a matter of uh, unity among the churches. You see these apostles coming and being present even now as the Holy Spirit is poured out on these individuals. What an incredible thing, the unity of this early church. And so they come down, the Holy Spirit comes upon these early believers. And what we find is that we find this church that is just continuing to do what God has called them to. But in the middle of that, we see that something is still continuing to go on within the heart of this man, Simon. Now, when Simon saw, this is verse number 18, that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. So he watches this. He sees the apostles laying hands on these individuals, confirming the position that God has placed them in for the time being here on this earth as they are leading and teaching and uh, spearheading this movement. And Simon looks at these apostles and he says, 
They've got something that I don't. They've got something that I don't. And so what does Simon do in response to this? What we find is we find in verse number 18, as he saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And so he comes to them and he says, hey, listen, how much for that? And you know what we also notice so far in this passage is we notice there's not a time specifically that Simon ever receives the Holy Spirit. But what we see, in fact, is that he saw others receiving the Holy Spirit. That's actually what we see in verses 17 and 18. And so he sees others receiving the Holy Spirit. He says, I want to give people that ability. I want to be able to do that. And so he goes up and says, hey, how much for that trick? But that's not how the power of God works. That's not how the power of God works. Now, in the the way that God works, there is a predictable pattern. We find grace that's been given freely to all of us. And that is the first thing that takes place when God's power is present in any situation, is the grace of God is poured out. And the Samaritans here receive the grace of God in the form of Philip preaching the gospel. They heard this man that came and began to take the word of God and help them to understand it and to know and to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who came to save them from their sin. Wonderful. The grace of God is demonstrated to the Samaritans. And then we find the obedience of these men and women. As they hear the word of God, they now believe the word of God. They're baptized. They begin taking these steps of obedience. And God blesses with the Holy Spirit. God responds and brings them into the greater body of believers as a whole as a result of this faith. But we find that Simon doesn't want to do it this way. Simon doesn't care for the obedience side of this. In fact, he doesn't even listen long enough to be able to understand what is taking place. You say, okay, well, how do you know that's true? How do you know that's not just an innocent mistake? Well, the Bible tells us. Because you see, as he comes and says, give me this power too, in verse number 20, where is that, what's that word again? But. We don't see even, this is one of the things that's amazing to me, is because if it's just this innocent mistake and, and oh, he's just ignorant, I mean, we would think that Peter would respond, hey man, that's not how any of this works. But what does Peter say? He says, verse number 20, May your silver perish. May your silver die with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gifts of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. And pray that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And so what does Peter say? He says, hey, you can take your money and both of you can just go out there and die. Peter seems like a really level-headed guy. Nice even-keeled response. But what is Peter doing? He's seeing the severity that Simon's sin is bringing into the body. He's seeing that Simon is bringing into the church these ideas and these ideals that don't mesh with biblical Christianity. Because remember, the church is whose bride? It's Jesus' bride. 
It's Christ's bride. He will defend her. And so watch what happens here. We see that we see this man, Simon, attempting to buy God's grace. And he says this, you have no part on this. But you might say, Nate, we just read a few minutes ago that, that Simon believed. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. And so as we explore this passage, that seems maybe like some sort of a contradiction. What's going on? If Peter, if Peter says, you have no part on this, your heart is not right. And yet Simon said that he, the Bible even says that Simon believed. Uh, can I point out to you James chapter number two? especially verses 18, 19, 20, we find specifically verse number 19 that James writes and he says, you think you do well. You say, oh, well, I believe. He says, okay, good. So do the demons. They believe and they're terrified. And it's the same word for belief. And so here what we find is that this Simon is not coming with a belief that has allowed and penetrated his heart to form repentance, but rather this is merely a knowledge of what God is doing. Because just like those demons believe, there is no salvation in them. They believe and they tremble knowing who God is. And the same Simon, he began to understand to have a knowledge of God, and yet what? His heart was far from it. And so we see Peter point that out, and he says, you have none of this. None of this belongs to you. Your heart is not right. Repent of this wickedness. And so he calls him to repent. And here's what I want you to understand has taken place. Simon had fooled those around him. Those people in the immediate vicinity, did they... They looked at him to the point where even he had been baptized. Simon fooled those around him. Did you know this? You can fool me. You can fool the other people in this room. You can probably even fool your family members. You know who you can't fool? You can't fool God. You can't fool God. You see, your admission into a church, uh, your, your opportunities to do things within the body, that is not an evidence or, or a certainly an assurity of our salvation. Our salvation rests with the one who knows and understands the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And so here we find this man, Simon, that everyone around him said, oh, it's amazing, there's this miracle. Simon has been converted. And Peter comes in, has an interaction with him and says, whoa, man. You are far away from what's actually taking place here. You think you can buy this? You think you can bribe God? No. And he rejects everything that's taking place within Simon's heart. And in fact, watch what he says. Because he says, repent, therefore, in verse 22. He says, it's time to change your mind about this. Repent of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. This is an interesting statement here to me. As he says that he is in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Those are interesting statements, right? The gall of bitterness. Do you guys ever like use that to describe anything? <laughs> Ah, yes, the gall of bitterness. What? 
And in fact, um, the way you and I use the word bitterness so often, we take bitterness and we kind of equate it with uh, another concept, um, unforgiveness. In your mind, how many of you, you would say, yeah, oftentimes I think we equate bitterness and unforgiveness. Those seem like synonyms sometimes, right? That's fair. I see a lot of nodding. Sometimes we, we tend to think of those things as being synonymous here. As we approach this text, where is Simon not forgiving someone? Is there a time that Simon's wronged in this passage that points to him being an unforgiving individual? There's really not. There's really not. If you're going, I don't see it, it's because it's not there. And the reason for that is when we look at biblical bitterness, it's actually quite different than the word that we use in English as unforgiveness. In fact, as we look at this biblical idea, as Peter is pointing out, why, why is he calling Simon bitter then if it has nothing to do with this unforgiveness? Here's what this word bitter, especially in this context, means. It means poison. It means poison. Um, think, of it, think of it this way. Um, you, how many of you, you like just dark, dark, dark chocolate? Like almost like cacao kind of stuff. Anybody in here just go grab cacao nibs and down those? Something's wrong with y'all. Um, I remember when I was young and I, uh, my mom was baking something, you know, and using that cacao, that really dense um, chocolate. And I was like, oh, mom, chocolate chips or whatever they were. And um, she was like, you're not going to like those. And I'm like, I love chocolate. Are you kidding me? And she's like, all right, have at it. Um, she, she knew that I would. And so what do I do? I took a few of those and I just, as a young kid, pop them in my mouth. What's the response of like a five-year-old who sticks dark, dark, dark chocolate into their mouth? Why? It's bitter. This is not edible. Mom, are you trying to kill us all? <laughs> Especially in this um, day and age, you and I, we, we artificially and we boil down and we produce. But especially in, in this era, think of it in such a way. If you go out and about and you're foraging for food and you put something up to your tongue and you taste that sensation, does your body go, give me more? Well, no. That's an indication that there's something unhealthy with the thing you're trying to put into your body. That's a don't touch this. And in fact, that's why a lot of those really, really bitter foods taste that way so that other animals and such are dissuaded from eating that. And so what we find is actually when this word bitterness is used in the scripture, especially the gall of bitterness, that gall is the same word we get gall bladder from. If you go back far enough into medical history, pre-modern age, they thought there were poisons that were stored in there. This is a storing place, almost like our kidneys function. That was the theory of uh, the gall bladder. And so you have gall, this other word for, for this, this poisonous material, right? And so what we find is we find as he's saying, you're in the gall of bitterness. He's going, hey, man, you are surrounded by poison. Well, what was the poison that Simon was taken in. Simon wanted the blessings of God without obedience to God. Simon wanted God to bless the thing that he was already doing. You see, Simon wanted the Holy Spirit to elevate Simon. Simon wanted the Holy Spirit, you hear me? To elevate Simon. He comes in and he says, oh, that'd be a cool trick. People would start following me again. How can I get a hold of this? And he wanted to utilize God's blessing intended for his people for the gospel to go forward and bring glory to God's name 
to bring glory to Simon. And in case you can't tell the difference, Simon is not God. And so God has a problem with this. You see, this ought to really, if you were here for our message in Acts chapter 5, this ought to jump out to you. You see, because biblical bitterness distracts people from following God, it elevates self over submission, and then it makes the mistake. It thinks it will actually be safe in its sin. Isn't that incredible? You have this, these man and woman, Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. They sell a piece of land, lie to the church about it, say they got more than they did. And then you have this man, Simon. And they are all just so bold in their rejection of God. How incredible. But they believe that God will promote them in some ridiculous, mistaken way. And so as we get into, as we understand this phrase, Maybe what we can understand bitterness is, instead of thinking of bitterness as being some idea of being wronged, where was Simon wronged in this passage? He wasn't. Bitterness and unforgiveness, is unforgiveness a problem? Yes, not the problem addressed here. But what we see is we see that bitterness says, I know better than, and acts accordingly. And so this bitterness here, it it can poison those nearby. And it's even, it's already begun, it's poisoning Simon's own heart. Here, Simon was bitter that his influence had been diminished, that he is no longer able to do the things that he did, have the crowd and the attention that he did. But we understand that if he wants to actually obey, it requires his submission. But Simon had no intent of actually submitting to what God was trying to accomplish. And you understand that when God wants to accomplish something in your life, Our response ought to be submission to what God's doing. But if you and I are honest, that's difficult. That's difficult. When we get the phone call from the doctor's office and they say the C word, cancer, do we want to submit to that response? When we find out that Something's going on in the life of our child, whether it be young or an adult child. Do we just say, oh, okay, Lord, you know best. We don't want to submit to that. When we lose our job, we don't want to submit to that. When all these different things happen, we don't want to submit to that. Anytime things don't go our way, the flesh in us doesn't want to submit to that. And so what we find is we begin to behave like Simon our authority problems begin to rear their heads. But Simon really only, he said, he would go around and say, I only have an authority problem because I'm not the authority. That's what an authority problem is. And at the end of the day, any authority problem we have is with God first and foremost, and that's what's happening in Simon's life. He's not saying, oh, Peter, I'm mad at you because you're, no. He's saying, God, why can't I have this as well? And so he becomes upset with and frustrated by God and what God is doing here. And so many times, if we're honest, we don't say, God, do your will, and I'll just submit to be okay with whatever it is. We might say that out loud, but in our hearts, we kind of look at God and go, God, can you please bless my mess? I've screwed this up, or I have these plans, or I want to do. God, would you just like give it a stamp of approval? But what happens when God doesn't rubber stamp your lives? What happens when God moves you in a different direction than you thought he would or should? How do we respond then? How do we respond to the news of infertility? 
How do we respond to the news of a a breakup or a divorce? How do we respond to the news of this person disappointing us and letting us down? How do we respond to those things? Because at the end of the day, he's God, you're not, and that's a good thing. We don't like to admit that. Simon sure didn't. When he saw an opportunity to retake control of his life, he said, how can I buy that? But that's not how this works. He's God, and you are not. So Simon believed that his best interests were everyone's best interests. Peter goes as far as to say that you're in the bond of iniquity. It means this, you're in bondage to sin. You're shackled up to sin. When sin says, do this, when that desire for self-promotion rises up inside of you, Simon, you don't know what to do except say yes. And so here, when the enemy gets a hold of Simon and begins to drag him here, he says, I have my opportunity. I've got a plant on the inside. And Simon shows himself to be far from God. See, sin was so, this sin specifically was so commonplace for Simon that he did it without thinking about it. He never stopped to say, huh, I think that's probably not how God works. And instead, he moved forward with this sin. In verse 24, Simon answers and he says this, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Simon's response, this is telling here. What does he say? He says, pray for me. Oh, Peter, pray for me. Then none of this happens. What did Peter tell him to do? Did Peter say, let me pray for you that this might happen? Was that Peter's response to Simon? Peter told him the solution. Was it, let me pray for you? It was not. It was Simon, repent. But did Simon want to repent? No. And so instead of actually repenting, he said, oh, pray for me. Pray for me. Don't let this be true. And yet Simon, we never find in the scriptures, we never find Simon repenting. You see, others can't repent for you. Others can't repent for you. Maybe you're in this room today and you're here because a family member or a friend is here. They invited you. They, 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 and let me tell you this. If you're here because a family member or a friend invited you, that friend, that family member, they love you if they invited you to be here today. They care about you if they invited you to be here today. They want good for you if they're inviting you to come and to hear a message from the Word of God. That's a good friend that's encouraging you in that direction. Lean into those friendships. But also understand this. Their Christianity, their faith, their repentance, their belief in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, cannot save you. You must make a decision to believe in Jesus Christ. And you see, as Philip went to this place, and as he said, believe in the Christ, he's preaching of Jesus, his sinless life, his death, his burial, his resurrection for sinners like us. He's preaching and he's teaching this and he's calling them to account all things that we need to hear. And a decision was placed in front of Simon. Repent. Turn away from believing that you can be good enough for God 
and place your faith in Jesus Christ. You can't be good enough, but he is. Today, maybe you're in this room and you've been doing your best to be a good person. You've been doing your best to try to follow the rules, thinking somehow that you can obtain the grace of God on your own. Can I tell you, that's not how any of this works. And in fact, that word grace is merely this, undeserved favor. How do you deserve undeserved favor? Can you get that by working hard or by achieving and just merely being a good person? No, that's literally the opposite of grace because grace at its core is undeserved. And so what we find is we find that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is people like you and like me who don't deserve grace being given it anyways, being handed the gift of God, his son, Jesus Christ. And as we put our faith in him, as we repent of trying to do this on our own and be good or righteous or holy or whatever, he says, repent, come to me. I will give you rest from all of those things. You understand that our salvation, our being made right with God, has nothing to do with your goodness or mine. It's all based entirely on the goodness of Jesus and how we respond to him.